Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 4, Classroom Research in an ALN Setting, with Dr Christina Kelly. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. We're recording another episode with a special guest who we're not sure whether to call doctor or not (laughs) because she has just uh, reached the very, very last lap of her her doctorate, her ed D. So because this is coming out a little bit after we're recording, I'm going to do it. I'm going to call you. Welcome. Dr. Christina Kelly. Oh, thank you. It feels so weird. I think you're the first person to call me that, actually. There we go. I thought I'd, I'd uh, grab that that accolade, be the first person to call you Dr. Christina Kelly. Massive uh, confidence in your, your ability to get those corrections in, but well done. Congratulations. You're one of our newest colleagues here at Cardiff Met, and your specialism is additional learning needs and specifically autism. Yeah, I've only been here since second of May specifically, so very newbie. Yeah, well, a very warm welcome. And you're here to talk us through the research that you did for your doctorate. But before you do that, would you like to tell us a little bit about your your career to date and how you've ended up sitting in this chair? Yeah, of course. I suppose it all started. I did an undergrad degree in early years development and education. Absolutely loved every second of it. Really ignited a passion for me with just early years education, working with younger pupils. So I thought I'd love to be a teacher one day. Uh, so did a PGC at Cardiff Met. Um, was really fortunate to get a job in a fantastic additional learning needs school in the Rhondda Valley. Um, stayed there for six years, I think. Um, became part of the senior leadership team. Loved every second. And then I thought, I'm not done with learning yet. So as you know, throughout the six years, then I embarked on an MA with Cardiff Met. MA came to an end and I thought, I'm still not done learning. Um, so I embarked on the ed d then i'd learned so much of the masters that i just was excited to see what i could learn on the ed d and you know the staff at cardiff met was so encouraging during the ma that i felt supported enough to go for it again further and now you are lecturer on our courses yeah. here with us yeah yeah i thought so teacher education and professional learning so um excited obviously when this comes out it'll probably be past this time but really excited to meet the students in september and Um, get started. So I'm interested to know how your master's led to your idea for your ED thesis because I'm guessing there was maybe some kind of link. Yeah um, a a little bit in the beginning so really randomly I was really lucky to go to Finland on an um, Erasmus trip. It was pre-Covid and when I was there the teachers had like multiple seating apparatus everywhere so things like um, therapy balls that you'd see in the gym And when we got talking to the Finnish teachers, they were saying, you know, it helps the children concentrate, you know, it's comfortable when the children... And I thought, wow, I wonder what that would do in my class, because I was based in um, an autism spectrum disorder provision with um, younger pupils. And so for the MA, I investigated sort of the impact of indoor versus outdoor environments and um, sort of, you know, the typical plastic chairs you see in like a nursery classroom mm-hmm. with uh, gym therapy balls. So I loved that process. It was really exciting for me. I learned a lot. Um, so I went into the ED and I was thinking, right, okay, I, I'm really interested in learning environments and the impact they have because they have an impact on everyone. I'm going to find another aspect of the learning environment and I'm just going to go for that you know whether it's um lighting or sound but I ended up sort of going back to my roots for the early years and looking at 
Piaget theory because I'd always always been interested in things like Piaget theory of schemas or Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, you know, things like that. And I just sort of sat there one day and thought, I wonder how I can amalgamate my two worlds of pedagogies almost because you have such specialised knowledge in terms of autism um, because obviously, you know, really lucky we get funded courses through the school, um, you know, qualifications we'd gained, you know, as a department, you know, and I thought, I, I wonder what what play schemas have in my classroom. Um, so I sort of evolved from the environment then to more activity based, resource based rather than just the environment itself. So I initially started out that it was going to lead straight on, but it sort of went sort of niche then, I suppose. And it's interesting to hear that you had to sort of range from the theoretical stuff to your classroom. Yeah. Was there a particular need or set of needs that you saw directly from working in the classroom with your with your pupils that you wanted to address with the EDD? I felt that through the MA and obviously it was it was sort of small scale research, I felt I'd made a difference um, to some pupils and I'd learned a lot about behaviour. So with the schemas, they tend to deplete once a child is about three, four, five years old. So technically, the children in my class were a bit beyond that in terms of age. But I read um, a book by Constable and she sort of touches on the fact that repetitive behaviours in autism and schemas, which are repetitive behaviour sequences as well, it can be hard to distinguish the difference. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, what if the behaviours I've been seeing are schemas? And why, you know, why aren't we facilitating schemas? Because I then read a study by Thomas and Jones in uh, 2020, and they they did the same, but I sort of mainstream. So they uh, tailored activities, um, I think it was literacy and numeracy activities, towards somebody's dominant schema, and they saw positive results. So I was like, wow. I feel like I've missed something here. You know, I, not all children with autism um, have repetitive behaviours, but some do. And I thought, have I been missing something here? Should I be tailoring activities, you know, to suit somebody's preferred exploration technique? You know, why haven't I been doing that? So that's that's how it evolved, I re- really. Without wishing to make any assumptions, um, I... I, I'm just thinking about listeners out there who might not be familiar with Piaget, who might not yeah. be familiar even with schema. Um, yeah. In, in sort of basic terms, what are we talking about there and, and what can that look like in the classroom? Yeah, so Jean Piaget was, um, is a, and still is, a very notable earlier theorist. His theories are still widely taught now, you know, things like schemas, um, you know, assimilation, accommodation, things like that. Um, but in terms of schemas, it's a cognitive sort of construct of repetitive actions that allow a person to learn about the world around them. Um, so I believe there's nine categories. Um, so for example, if a child has a transporting schema, it means they like to move a lot, they might like to move, move objects a lot, and that's how they conduct their learning, that's how they learn. Even though there's nine, there's no one that's more sophisticated than the other. Uh, some children might have multiple ways of learning. So yeah, it's basically just the way somebody learns about the world around them. It's, and Piaget believed that it was um, very much a core meaning to the child. So it was their preferred way and that should be celebrated. You know, everybody has different ways. And then I think by about five years old, it tends to deplete then, you know, as we move into formal education, I suppose. But yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell, really. It's just the way a child learns about the world around them. 
And just kind of picking up on this really interesting thing about schema, I know, for example, we've had our, our lovely colleague, Dr. Louise Allen Walker on uh, before, who's a um, psychology specialist. And, and you know, we've had her railing against the discredited kind of neuromyth of learning styles, you know, this idea that, every, you know, everybody's a visual or auditory or a kinesthetic learner, you know, and it's, it's that neuromyth that refuses to die <laughs> in the classroom, you know, people really stick to that. We often, I mean, pretty much every year we'll get an assignment in which, which hangs its hand on learning styles and it's always a bit awkward when you're trying to market but this is something different this schema thing is something different this this piaget idea i mean can we can we just try and sort of disentangle those two things for the for the benefit of our of our listeners what's going on with the with the schema thing against this this not so great idea of learning styles yeah i think like you said it's been discredited now and i remember um revising for my a levels and thinking right i need to revise the a way is effect, you know, in a way that is effective for me. So I did like a VAC test, which I think we were back in the day we were encouraged to do, and I came out as auditory. I thought, okay. So I recorded myself because I did religious studies for one of my levels. I recorded myself talking about my notes, and like a week later, I was like, nothing is going in. Like <laughs> this, I still, you know, uh, you know, I have to say I had an A star, so you know, well, it obviously was going in. But then, yeah. no, but I, but after that, after that week, yeah. um, I had to put that aside and thought, right, okay, that is not for me, and yeah. I ended up just doing it the way that worked for me. Um, so I love making like diagrams and writing I you know I write you know when I write things it, it tends to go in so that's obviously been discredited now and I think when we were young when I was younger certainly everybody was like well are you visual are you this are you that and I think you were almost pigeonholed into a one of three categories which I think obviously we know now is, is discredited it wasn't inclusive it obviously I think it quite had a negative effect on many people but in terms of schemas they are so they are you don't choose the schema sort of it is a natural expression that should be celebrated so there isn't an adult or there shouldn't be an adult you know saying right okay this person I I think they go in to be an enveloper let's just support that enveloping need when actually we're stepping back we're looking at what the children are doing if they show an enveloping tendencies great if they show in transporting tendencies that's fine. Nobody's got, well, some children do have dominant, you know, schemas, but some children may have two or three. And that's fine because the child is determining their way of learning around the classroom. It's very natural. It's seen in very, very early years. We're talking between one years old and three years old. So that child has formulated their own way of exploring and that shouldn't be interrupted. That should be celebrated. So I think in terms of VAC, you know, uh, the visual auditory kinesthetic sort of um, theory, I feel like that was almost, um, you had to fit into a category. You had to, you know, and like I said, my experience, it didn't work for me. I tried my best, you know, with RE, it just didn't work. Um, but in terms of schemas, it's very naturalistic. And a child assimilates information through exploring the world around them. So they acquire new information, they accommodate new information. So they store that information and they reach a stage of equilibration then so I think the difference is schemas is very natural and it's a cognitive construct which has a core meaning to the individual whereas I think the VAC you know theory isn't an innate 
theory it's not an innate construct I would say so I think schemas are far more naturalistic in that sense and individualistic and you're you're saying that they generally they apply generally to very very young children they're making sense of the world when yeah they're very young, yeah right? and as opposed to someone doing their GCSEs yeah, me, do, yeah me doing my A-level you know <laughs> doing an you know a VAC test no so and I think there's research to suggest that maybe by about five years old they do tend to deplete a bit more mm. and they might multiply so where, whereas you had one dominant maybe you've got a few now um but I know there's been a bit of research in terms of um, early key stage two about the role of schemas there and I think that was also positive as well so at the moment we think that they stop at five but you never know you know that could be another area for me to go down one day you know and see if there's a place for maybe in you know key stage two or above so yes it's a very natural way of learning that we should be celebrating and promoting I would say. So I'm just thinking now about the, the sheer size of a doctorate. I mean, it's a, a huge <laughs> thing, isn't it? But you did the EdD, which is kind of a bit more more structured. Yes. So how did you actually go about? Because, I, you know, loads of us in the classroom think, oh, there's an interesting thing. You know, I'd like to find out more about that. <laughs> Many of us then don't go on to do a doctorate about it. How is it that you, you, you kind of embarked on that process of turning that hunch into something big enough to, to turn into a doctorate? I have to say, I will I will have to name drop. I think my I was really lucky to have worked with Dr. Susan Davis on my master's. She also taught me on my PGC and she was very enthusiastic and also my other supervisor, Dr. Jenny Clement as well. As soon as I sort of expressed like, I've got an idea, they were so supportive. They were like, absolutely, you know, let's go for this. So I felt like I had a lot of confidence in the idea. I didn't know where it was going to go. But we went for it and the results were really interesting. And like I said, I saw, I felt I saw a positive impact from my MA. So the thought of another positive impact for my poop bills was enough then to push me to do it. And I just love learning as well. And was the school supportive of you, you kind of doing this? Did they see the benefits? Really supportive. I was, you know, our head teacher was absolutely fantastic. He was really interested, really wanted to know about what I was doing um, and supported me all the way. You know, they, the school took a really great interest in it and were really, I think, proud of me, you know, for doing something like that. So let's get into the nitty gritty now. When you were actually sort of gathering data, what methods were you using? What were you actually doing? And presumably this was classroom based. Yeah, yeah. So what were you doing to try to investigate this hunch that you had about the link between these behaviours that you were seeing and, and schema? Yeah. What did you do and what did you find? I suppose... It- it started informally because, like you said, the doctorate is really structured. So for quite a while, you don't need to collect data formally. Um, so it's just theoretically based for a while. But I started stepping back a lot. You know, as teachers, we observe constantly anyway. So I started stepping back a lot and thinking, am I seeing schemas in the classroom? What is it? What does it look like? You know, what does it look like in my modern day classroom here in the provision that we were in? And, you know, I started noticing that if a child was running back and forth, which maybe you would assume was a repetitive behaviour of autism. It was like, well, maybe it's not. Maybe they're transporting. And, you know, as long as everybody's safe, why can't we, you know, move back and forth? Or why can't we tap things or, you know, whatever? So that's how I did it at first. I really was looking at the... Because we have to do a literature review as part of the ED. Um, I was really in-depth looking at everything and then going back into the classroom the next day and literally just taking it all in. Um, But then when it came to the formal data collection, ethically, you know, I have to be really careful. And I think, you know, students or teachers who are out there were thinking about conducting research with additional learning needs or um, autistic children and people need to be aware of, 
the ethical you know considerations that they need to be mindful of so I was very passionate about the fact that we had just returned from COVID um, life wasn't back to normal just yet you know we had to wear masks and things like that you know we had to distance as much as what we could so my priority I suppose was that I really wanted the children to have a positive experience it did not want my research to have any negative impact upon the children so I had to research ways of how I could do that and I think the the way that worked for me was just practitioner observations so the children were used to me doing that anyway it wasn't anything new and the activities that were set up were small world play and a role play activity things they loved that wouldn't be out of the ordinary for them to see anyway but obviously with that then comes the covert element of research so that's obviously something as well to be mindful of and so I don't know if I should explain what COVID is for student teachers so it's basically um, conducting research and it can sometimes be called deceptive because the participants don't necessarily know that they're being observed. So obviously in this case, um, the children couldn't give consent because of their additional learning needs. So obviously I then had to speak to parents and, you know, give information and say, this is what we're doing. If, if you want to participate, great. If you don't, that's fine. If you want to, you know, if you do give consent, you want to withdraw, that's absolutely fine. You know, you're well within your rights to do that. So there was that element there, but obviously I knew that the children were happy because I knew the children, because in additional learning needs schools, you tend to teach the same child for quite a few years. So I knew the children really well. But because of this element, um, this research element, I needed to be hyper aware of signals that meant they weren't happy. So if they couldn't verbally tell me, I want to go back to class, I had to be really mindful of eye movements towards the classroom door, sounds that I would interpret as unhappy. And I made sure that the research took place really close to the classroom door and the door was open. So if you want to go back, you know, you can just walk back. You know, it's, there's no pressure there um, for anybody to participate. They could withdraw at any point. So, yeah, that was that, that was the method that worked for me, really, was practitioner observations. And I think that would probably work for a lot of teachers out there because it's something that we do, um, and you know, as teachers, we're really good at. So that's the route I ended up going down. So did you generate a huge amount of data? Because I know that qualitative methods like that can can produce reams and reams. Yes. So how did you sort of manage that? Because you had to get this over the line at the same time. Yeah. So. yeah, no. So each participant had their own notebook and I would literally, there was no preconceived um, sort of targets for the child. So they would just approach the activity and engage in any way they wanted. There was no preconceived, you know, you must do this or try this. You know, unless they wanted me to be involved, I would get involved. But if they wanted to just be independently exploring, that's fine. So I would then just sit back and just record, which was really hard. And I think um, I did contemplate thinking, right, should I maybe video instead? But obviously that can be quite distracting for some children. And I didn't want to add any more, you know, didn't want to add any stress to the participants or anything. So maybe in the future, that's a route I could go down. But yeah, every participant had had a notebook and it was filled basically so yeah it was it was a lot it was a lot of data to go through and I think I ended up doing a thematic analysis as well so it was a lot of data to read through as well and you know code to go through so yeah so there you were look at you were looking through all of that data looking for emergent themes yeah and and I note um from your having read your abstract that there was something quite significant that kept coming up again and again tell us about that yeah so when 
we were conducting, so when I was conducting the schematic driven pedagogy sort of philosophy, I would look at a child's schema against Piaget's criteria and say, okay, this child's a transporter. This is how I'm going to differentiate the activity to support a transporting schema. But there was a few participants who I was like, hmm, I, I can't see Piaget's schema here. And to me, to make them fit into the category of a schema sort of negates the point of the study, really, you know, um, because I wanted the idea behind the schematic driven pedagogy was to promote inclusivity. You know, this is what it looks like in the classroom. So I thought, I'm not going to say you're a transporting schema if you're not. I'm not going to say you're an enveloping schema when you're not, because we won't get accurate results that way. So I spent some time just, you know, observing the child interact and they were repetitive sequences of action. So things like um, tapping or things like shaking items. And I th- and when you think back to that little book I read about they can be really hard to distinguish, you know, repetitive behaviours in autistic children and schemas, it was like, what if they're the same? <laughs> you know, it sort of had like a lot of mold of, oh my goodness, what if they are the same thing? And there's many more categories out there than we originally thought. And we were saying, oh, you, don't, you know, you haven't got an enveloping schema when actually maybe you've got a tapping schema or maybe you've got a shaking schema or, you know, um, other repetitive behaviors like you know whatever you know whatever you're seeing in your classroom and then when you look back then in terms of uh, Piaget so I think the schema theory was out in the 50s and I think it's anecdotally known that Piaget um, observed a lot of his own children and you know things like that so it's I, I then had to question well is this the same, you know, 70, 70 years on? Are, are these nine categories still relevant? Or are we, are there more out there to be unlocked? So, you know, the first, I think the first publicised case of autism was 1943 by Kana. You know, we've learned a lot since then. So when Piaget's theory came out like 10 years later, do we think that that was inclusive of, you know, well, probably not because it wasn't well known about then. So my idea was then that maybe that they're the same thing and maybe we should be treating repetitive behaviors as schematic expressions and that maybe when a child engages in repetitive actions like tapping or shaking maybe they're learning about the world around them obviously there's many reasons why children engage in repetitive behaviors you know it could be to reduce sensory input it could be to gain sensory input it can be because it's fun or it can be you know because maybe we're a bit anxious and that gives us comfort but maybe another reason could be that actually I'm learning about the world around me and sometimes you know I think as teachers we limit certain behaviors because you know we're in the classroom maybe some some people have got 30 children in their classroom you know well, stop that now come on we're doing this but maybe we shouldn't be stopping that maybe we should be facilitating activities or you know resources that support that behavior so yeah so this is where we're getting to the bit where you generate something <laughs> new isn't it because yeah. you kind of you've built on those those ideas from piaget i suppose were yeah. you were you presenting this that perhaps there were more schema than Piaget had suggested? And because you were working with these these autistic children in that particular environment, it was just easier to see them because they they manifested themselves? Or, or were you suggesting that these were things that were specific to autistic children? Or are you saying this is this is applicable more widely? I think this is applicable more widely. Um, obviously, I worked with autistic pupils, so that was just the context that it was conducted in originally. Um, but, you know, there's many uh, children... The, you know, many children out there who engage in repetitive behaviours who maybe haven't got a diagnosis of anything, but there are many diagnoses out there as well that 
can produce repetitive actions. So yeah, I think it's applicable across the board, really, I, I would like to think. Um, and I just like to think that there's maybe more categories out there that we just haven't discovered yet. And I'd like to think as well that maybe there's a category for everyone, because for me, my experience has been that the nine it wasn't a category for everyone. So, yeah. Yeah, it leads me to think as well, you've got a very particular learning environment, haven't you, in these ALN settings? Yeah. Very, very child-centred, much yeah. fewer children, I suppose much more responsive to the needs of the pupils. That perhaps, you know, the mainstream teachers, as you say, they don't have the luxury of that no. because they've got those 30 pupils. It it makes you think that, that, that maybe these settings are a really kind of fertile place for doing this sort of research. Absolutely. And, you know, I was really lucky when I did my undergrad. I did work experience in a playgroup, but also got taken on in the playgroup as well. And places like that as well, you know, you're, they're right in the fun early years of their education. There's a lot of independent exploration, child-led learning, you know, environments like that. I'd like to think you're going to see independent expressions. And like you said, I absolutely understand that a mainstream teacher who's got maybe 30, 35 children is not going to be able to go through each child and think, right, okay. But there might be one child who is struggling to access activities, who maybe is having trouble concentrating and maybe... They might not have a new schematic behaviour, but they might be under Piaget's schematic behaviours. And maybe staff who didn't do an early years degree might not know about Piagetian schemas. So, you know, you could do it for one child if they really need it. You know, I would never expect somebody to be able to do it for 35 children. It would take way too long, you know. So, yeah. I understand that my environment was really niche and um, the perfect environment for it at the time. So I'm just thinking back now to... um the people who would be your sort of main audiences for this research. And an ED is unique in that it brings together the world of practice and the world of academia. And I know that you probably had various fora where you were sharing this with classroom practitioners. You probably felt very passionate about making sure that it was accessible to them. But you also had to sit down in front of two significant heavyweights in the world of your field and academia to present this to. So I'm really keen to know what sort of reception did you get from the academics? What sort of reception did you get from classroom practitioners? Um, So I think classroom practitioners were really interested and some were very honest in the fact that they'd never heard of schemas. And I would never expect somebody who's maybe done an undergrad in a subject area to understand about schemas, you know, this was my bread and butter, you know, from the ages of 18 to 21, you know, for my undergrad. So, you know, I wouldn't expect them to um, know enough about schemas to, you know, really fully explore it in their classroom. But I think one benefit that I didn't see coming out of it was that other practitioners were learning about schemas as well, which was, you know, to me was like, oh, and, you know, a benefit that I just didn't see come in. The reception in terms of, you know, the two academics, it was really interesting because they offer different perspectives. Um, Whereas I think when we're in our own classroom, you know, we just think about our own class. Well, I certainly did, you know, think about our own classroom, you know, because, you know, you're with that class for a year, you know, you every night you go home you think about right what are we going to do tomorrow how can we make this better you know things like that you're constantly reflecting as a teacher so I think they offered me perspectives and terminology that maybe weren't that familiar to me so one area that I was really encouraged to look at was autobiographies by autistic people Um, and I read a fantastic one by Abigail Balfe and what they say about their own repetitive actions and why we engage in certain actions and why so 
that was a really useful tool for me to explore because it was seeing it from an autistic person's perspective, whereas my, my obviously my project came from my own perspective. And to explore things like sensory play, monotropism, you know, and to me, those perspectives really enriched the final project because it meant that we were taking data and making sure that it was representing a wider range of pupils, autistic pupils. So yeah, it was it was really interesting, and you know, it re- I felt it really enriched the process. And then, in terms of all these kind of mixed mixed roles that you have, and we've spoken to people about this before who've who've done research in the classroom like this, you know. And, and I remember saying to to a previous guest, I guess in a way, the people that just teach have it easy. The people that just research have it easy but you were researching while teaching and I mean you've spoken about the ethical kind of issues about looking after your pupils but how did you kind of I guess look after your own integrity (laughs) I suppose as both a teacher and a researcher how easy did you find it wearing two hats at once I I really enjoyed the process but you know for students who are going to go on to do research it can be quite tiring you know you do need to look after yourself as well and I was a senior leader as well so I wore a different hat again but I think you need to compartmentalize the roles as well to a certain extent so I know some colleagues I've spoke to here they set aside certain days for certain things so a Monday is research day and you know that's purely what it's there for so for me um, as a teacher I would just do everything on the weekend as well so for me that was my ideal so I would literally observe 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 throughout the week write down anything that I was like light bulb moments and then I would relax then at home and just like research everything read around areas check books out of the library things like that I have meetings with like my supervisory team and a really good way of sort of offloading I suppose maybe because it can be quite stressful you know doing a doctorate and teaching full-time there was um like an Eddie Cupper and chat group that was really good because you'd have people so when I was maybe in the middle you'd have people at the end going right you need to do this now and make sure you take time to do this so you know it was really hard but I think if you enjoy it which I did I sort of takes the stress out a little bit but it is it is I would try and compartmentalize as much as possible so keep certain days for certain things brilliant well Congratulations to you. A hell of a lot of hard work. Um, I guess that that to sort of close this deep discussion, where next now with your research? Have you you even had time to to think about that? Um, I've thought about it a little bit because the majority of my eddy was during COVID. So I had really grand plans in the beginning. I was going back to Finland. You know, I was going to, you know, go everywhere. I was going to travel across South Wales to go to different schools. And obviously that was taken away from me as it was from everybody else. So I think I would love to work with ITE students to see if they could take, you know, because I obviously I know there's a big, you know, a big responsibility for ITE students to engage in research and inquiry. And it would be great if they could collaborate with me and, you know, take things into the classroom in terms of schemas and, you know, see what's going on in classrooms at the moment. Because obviously my research is my classroom. So it'd be interesting to gather data from different settings like we talked about earlier, you know, things like early years and playgroups are fantastic, you know, environments for early foundation 
education so it would be great to visit one of you know a couple of those and just to see the reception of the schematic driven pedagogy you know is this something we could do have you noticed that maybe a child is engaging in actions that maybe aren't under the Piagetian criteria you know how could we support this further I would love to go back to Finland again um, to go to the you know see what they know about schema see what they're doing up there I also would love to keep publishing so I'm going to be really, really strict with myself and I'm going to really try my best to go for it. And I'm going to try and compartmentalise next year and keep maybe a day or two for writing things. And it'd just be great to work with anybody really who is interested in schemas and who has ideas of how to, to you know, take my research further as well. Because obviously I understand that people in different environments have got different perspectives on schemas as well. So, yeah, I just want to take it further and just go for it. <laughs> So as with all of our guests, we have asked you to do some uh, extra preparation for this podcast episode. We've asked you to think about something interesting for our teachers out there and something to try, something they could try maybe tomorrow in their classrooms um, if possible. So leave it up to you, um, Christina. You can choose which one you want to go for first. Um, So something interesting. Yeah, go for it. Um, Something I wished I'd known about when I was training was sensory processing. It's a term that I think is often associated with ALN so yeah definitely have a little read around that to see how the environment is affecting them or how certain activities can affect them as well so any any um sorry to put you on the spot but any go-to texts on that that are accessible um to be honest there's quite a lot on Met search because I use quite a lot of it for my MA how and stag 2016 I would um pop that into the Met search bar because I think they um from the top off the top of my head they had a lovely study which I thought was really nice to read but in terms of specific specificity um interoception google that term as well or met search that term because it's a really interesting term that I think I've only come across in the last couple of years because of one of my colleagues in my last school and it's about knowing what's going on in your body and how we know so how do we know we're thirsty how do we know we're hungry you know Uh, and some children may have you know difficulties in that so it's good to know if you're in the classroom in a very busy classroom to understand different people's needs and our second slot is something that people can try in their professional life is it do a doctorate (laughs) (laughs) do you know I would say yes every day I would say yes every time if you love it you should you know if you love learning you should go for it I loved every second um in terms of the classroom I'm going to be biased again um but I loved exploring the aspects of the environment so I would look at benefits of like the out I know this is a really simple one but and especially because of COVID you know not at the moment thankfully it seems to be depleting but looking at the environment indoor versus outdoor you know is there anything you could be changing in your timetable that could take things outdoors and you know one of my teachers always used to say there's no such thing as bad weather only bad clothing you know things like that but um I would also look at things like seating I loved using therapy balls in my classroom. Obviously, you probably should seek advice from like an occupational therapist if you've got one in school, things like that. But I loved seeing like the difference it made to my pupil. So exploring how you can change things up in the classroom in terms of environment was really useful. Dr. Christina Kelly. Left that one for you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure and I'm sure this won't be the last that we've heard of you. I'm sure we'll get you back on to uh, find out more about where your research takes you next. And I'm really excited at the prospect of you incorporating some of your IT students um, Mm. to collaborate on, on, on that future research. So thank you. Thank you. All the best for the future and uh, do come back to us. Thank you. 
We will be back with you in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was our brand new Cardiff Met colleague, Dr. Christina Kelly. And thanks to Christina for joining us today. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod if you'd like to come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.